Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, in this episode, I'll be sort of talking about the second hundred pages, the second third of LaSalle and the Discovery of the Great West by Francis Parkman. This is the third volume of France and England in North America. But, um, you know, on the, on the surface, there's not that much to talk about. This is very much a narrative section of, of this book. Uh, covering LaSalle's expeditions in the Upper Great Lakes and the Mississippi uh, Valley and some of the interactions he had with uh, the Indians in the region. But instead of, of kind of going through this in too much detail, um, instead I, I want to talk about an, an issue that's that's been on my mind quite a lot in the last few years, um, partially because of a project I've been working on putting together about about the Pacific. And my, my idea there is, well, it comes out of uh, just uh, my interest in labor history and the writing I've done on the Pacific. And I, I noticed as I was looking at sources, looking at uh, various texts, just how many, what a big role desertion played, even in voyages like Captain Cook's. Uh, or especially Malaspina's. I actually did a, a conference paper about the Malaspina expeditions of the 18th century in the Pacific. It's kind of like the Spanish Captain Cook, if you want to think of who Malaspina is. Um, and he was active in the la 1790s, 1780s maybe. And he did uh, some expeditions in the Pacific and a, and a very major one. But it was plagued by desertion. It was plagued by worker unrest. And I think one of my favorite examples of this was workers, sailors, on his on his expedition selling their winter clothes in the summertime and then when winter came basically the captain Malspina and the, they were forced to buy new winter clothes for the the crew and it just seemed a very very clever way to supplement the income of the of the workers by by you know selling the winter clothes but on top of that there were desertions people running off to pacific islands people and then you know you might not think desertion is not a big deal but these crews were not, these ships weren't heavily manned. Um, the one we're going to look at today, the Griffin, this uh, LaSalle's ship on the Great Lakes, sailing ship on the Great Lakes, you know, the, the major, the largest up to that point sailing ship, maybe the first major sailing ship in the Great Lakes. Uh, it only had a crew of like some 30 people, and every person was kind of essential to the working of the ship. So if you had even three or four people desert, you know, th those could not be easily replaced. Um, and if you didn't replace them, that would have a function on the, the effectiveness of the, of the ship. So desertion had a really, really big impact. And in the Malaspina expeditions, they had to pay off local uh, indigenous people to find you know, where these deserters were, sometimes spend days tracking down these people, and implementing whole work regiments to try to prevent the, this, these desertions. And it became kind of collectively almost a form of infrapolitics. That's a concept James Scott developed in some of his work on peasant cultures and peasant resistance. And that is kind of day-to-day -day resistance that on its, you know, as individual acts may not seem like much, but collectively form a challenge to institutions of power um, and class structures and things like that. And, and he gives the example of, you know, like the jokes, uh, maybe at the expense of bosses, you know, the farting when the nobleman walks, the peasant farting when the nobleman walks by, 
these types of resistance, and certainly this is a big issue when we look at something like slavery, resistance of slaves in the various slave societies, when they can't resist outright in, in forms of like slave rebellions for whatever reason, usually just, you know, it's too challenging or you got families or whatever, but often you'll engage in other forms of resistance that, again, individually don't aren't much, but they add up. You know, things like breaking tools or faking illnesses, things like that, end up being uh, putting pressure on the system and and transforming it. Um, so what I just want to talk about in this section of this book, um, you know, after just just kind of establishing that this is mostly about LaSalle's expeditions in the in the Mississippi Valley. Uh, we get a little bit on Tanti, who's another French um French uh, explorer who's with LaSalle at this time, so kind of like with McCart, Mc, Mc Marquette, he's kind of another side character in this is his, this adventure. Um, but you know, I'm not going to give you too much on that because you know, if you want to read it, you can. I think it's it's some good stuff. But I want to focus on the working class here, and and you know, it's not something Parkman talks that much about, like overtly. Because he's not really interested in working class history, at least not in these first three volumes. Maybe in volume four, there's a little bit more of that, because um, he does more look at like the institutions in Canada as a whole, especially around Quebec. But up to this point, you know, workers haven't been a part of the story uh, in the same way maybe they would be if he was writing the history of the English in North America, because you'd have to look at indentured servants and slaves and things like that. Instead, he's been talking about the traders. The Jesuits, the explorers, the the you know kind of the big names, um, and that's kind of something we might expect given the nature of the French Empire, kind of light on the settlers, big on on kind of interactions with the Indians. So you're going to focus more on the diplomatic, religious, political side of the story, and you understand that, and that makes some sense. But you know something that's striking for me when you look at this part of of Volume Three is just how much of a role the working class seems to play in an antagonistic role to LaSalle. So they're French, they're on the French side, at least nominally, but they are very, very antagonistic to LaSalle's mission and what LaSalle is trying to do. Now, you know, the conditions of the voyage of the Griffin were not good. They, they were plagued with difficulties and Parkman spends a lot of time describing just the misery the day-to-day -day misery of this particular expedition, something he hasn't, he didn't talk about much in previous um, volumes and previous sections. It's, it's, it's fresh in a way if you're reading through this, you know, all in a, in a group. You know, it's something he didn't really talk that much about. He did a little bit with like the Huguenots and some of those early settlements uh, and the misery of that. But, uh, you know, as far as expeditions go, he didn't get into that too much in previous volumes, but here he does. Um, quote, this was no journey of pleasure. The lake was ruffled with almost ceaseless storms, clouds big with rain above, a turmoil of gray and gloomy waves beneath. Each night the canoes must be shouldered through the breakers and dragged up the steep bank, which, as they neared the side of Milwaukee, became almost insurmountable. The men paddled all day with no other food than a handful of Indian corn. They were spent with toil, sick with the haws and wild berries which they ravished, devour, ravishly devoured, and dejected at the prospect before them. Father Gabriel's good spirits began to fail. He fainted several times from famine and fatigue, but was revived by certain confection of hyacinth administered by Hennepin, who had a small box of the precious stuff. 
And a little bit later, he says, while thus employed, they were startled at the sight so often fearful in the waste and wilderness of a print of human foot. The clear the Indians are not far off. So on top of that, you have the threat of the Indians who are not entirely sympathetic to the French. Now, this is farther west, of course. These are new encounters between the French and Indians. They're not the Iroquois groups. They're other um, peoples that they were less familiar with interacting with. So that's another sort of antagonist in this story. But as I said, I want to kind of focus on, on just what the working class who were tagged along this voyage were put up with, had to put up with, and what they, how they responded uh, to that. Um, so um, the first, I think, mention we get here of, of, of desertion comes in response to the winter coming. But there were other discussions of like their stuff being stolen by Indians and that increasing the burden on their just day-to-day -day lives. Um, but here's what Parkman writes. I think, th I think this is the first mention of desertion. Uh, quote, he pushed on, however, circling around the southern shore, shore of Lake Michigan until he reached the mouth of St. Joseph, called by him the Miamis. Here Tonti, this is another Frenchman with them, here Tonti was to have rejoined them with 20 men making his way from Michel Mackinac along the eastern shore of the lake, but, was, but the rendezvous was, a solid, was solitude. Tonti was nowhere to be found. It was the first of November. Winter was at hand and the streams would soon be frozen. The men clamored to go forward, urging that they should starve if they could not reach the villages of the Illinois before the tribes scattered for the winter hunt. La Salle was inexorable. If they should all desert, he said, he with his Mohegan hunter and three friars would still remain and wait for Tonti. The men grumbled but obeyed, and to divert their thoughts, he sent them to building a fort of timber on the rising ground at the mouth of the river. And then in the next paragraph, we get the story of the work, the 20 days of work building this, this fort. Um, and they finally get to go ahead and move on, but with two less people, um, excepting two deserters, we're told. Now, they join later on, but this is not going to be the first case of desertion or outright like rebellion by these, these French uh, sailors and, and just laborers who are along for the ride. Um, and integral, actually. I, I shouldn't say it that way. They're integral to this voyage. This doesn't happen without these working class people. And that's true of all these explorations. And that's the bigger point I want to get at, is I think we need a labor history of exploration. Um, whether it's scientific, because uh, of course, every scientific achievement, it's not just on the shoulders of giants. Like, of course, Einstein's not there if not for Newton. And that's normally what we mean by the shoulders of giants. But ever, all these scientific efforts are supported by working class people often, whether they're the people in a chemical lab making this or that, or the lens grinders, or whatever it might be. Or like I talked about last time in the Central Asiatic expeditions, the, the workers who tagged along those expeditions, you know, hauling the fossils, driving the cars, uh, maintaining the pack mules, all those kinds of things. They're crucial to this. And it, it's part, gotta be part of the story. And there are some historians who have started to, to tell this history a little bit. Now, who were these workers? Uh, well, we're told they're not really the kind of people who are made for this kind of expedition. They aren't the, they aren't the fur traders. They're not just, you know, that's one, they, he didn't just recruit fur traders because there weren't maybe not enough for what he needed. Um, Parkman writes, LaSalle's men for the most part raw hands, knowing nothing of the wilderness and easily alarmed of its dangers. But there were two among them, the old corps de bois, who unfortunately knew too much for they understood as Indian orator and explained his speech to the rest. 
Um, as LaSalle looked around on the circle of his followers, he read the augury of fresh troubles in their disturbed and restless visages. He waited patiently, however, till the speaker had ended, and then answered that, although through his interpreter, with great composure. Um, so there's grumbling from very, very early on in this section of the, of the book by the, by the workers. We don't get their voice directly, but we get their actions, and we get the signs of their grumbling and their resistance and their, 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 their misery. And the response is, is what can they do except really bail? And that's the most common type of resistance. It's not going to be the only one we get here, but the major type of resistance we're presented here is just people bailing on the expedition altogether. So one night he leaves some sentinels uh, near the Indian camp, um, fearing treachery of the Indians. So these were the night guards. Now, on the morning after the feast, I'm reading directly from Parkman. On the morning after the feast, he came out into the frosty air and looked about him for the sentinels. Not one of them was to be seen. Vexed and alarmed, he entered hut after hut and roused his drowsy followers. Six of the number, including two of his best carpenters, were nowhere to be found. Discontented and mutinous from the first, and now terrified by the fictions of Neocampe, they had deserted, preferring the hardship of the midwinter forest to the mysterious terrors of the Mississippi. La Salle mustered the rest before him and invade sternly against the cowardice and baseness of those who thus abandoned him. Regardless of his many favors, if any here he added are afraid, let them, but wait till the spring when they'll be free to leave to return to Canada safely and without dishonor. This desertion cut him to the heart. It showed him that he was leaning on a broken reed, and he felt that on the enterprise full of doubt and peril, there were scarcely four men in his party whom he could trust. Nor was desertion the worst he had to fear, for here, as is Fort Frontenac, an attempt was made to kill him. Tante tells us that poison was placed in the pot in which their food was cooked, and that Lasalle was saved by an antidote which some of his friends had given him before he left France. This, it will be remembered, was the epoch of poisoners. So yeah, some really intense labor strife here. Uh, a, a group of people without discipline, without uh, a commitment to the mission beyond their paycheck, we presume, and without really the preparation, and Lasalle's failure to prepare fully for winter, for the threat of the Indians, for uh, the dangers and the misery, he he paid the cost of this in basically a worker revolt. And I think that's one way we can look at this. Um, I don't know if anyone's done this, you know, but it'd be interesting. It'd be an interesting kind of ex experiment to go back to the sources Parkman looks at, to go back to these primary sources, and and discuss. You know, is it right? Can we look at LaSalle's expedition in the Mississippi and the Great Lakes as a essentially something plagued by constant working class revolt, right? Not unions, not organization, but, you know, a resistance of another type. Uh, now, there's a great book called, uh, now it's not about this, but it's called uh, The Making of the Voyager's World, which is about the French fur traders. And that book, and I forget the author's name, um, I'm, um, but that's the title. The Making of the Voyager's World. It's a really great book that just looks at the, the, the French fur trappers kind of as a labor history, people working for the different fur trading companies in French Canada. And they were often engaged in kind of working class protest of various types. So I think there's something really to this, this story. And, and again, it's just something to hint at that throughout this volume, but it's really hard to miss when you, when you do read it. Um, of course, what Parkham is more interested in is kind of the establishment of the French Empire 
in in the Mississippi and kind of the failure to create something more permanent, more more enduring. Um, you know, we see this. We get the story of the building of Fort Crevelcoir, which uh, another fort that LaSalle built. He, he built quite a few actually. Um, but yeah, uh, desertion is here, kind of almost in some degree on almost every page. Uh, quote. Uh, this is on page 845. LaSalle had good reason to hope his followers would neither mutiny nor desert in his absence. One chief purpose of his intended voyage was to procure the anchors, cables, and rigging of the vessel he meant to build at Fort Crevacore. This is after the Griffin kind of vanished. We still don't know what happened to that, that particular expedition. My point is, it's kind of a constant, constant fear. Um, now, Parkman is kind of being drawn to this Greatman view of, of history, centering his narrative on Ponte and, and, and LaSalle, but, but they're there, the workers are there, they have their voice, they have their agency, and it's not hard to see, it's hard to hide, and, and that, in this sense it has an effect. It changes how LaSalle approaches his mission. He does things differently because of the threat of, of mutiny, of the threat of desertion. He has to, because he's reliant on these working people, he can't do it alone. And that's one reason I think we really need to recenter our history of exploration to be more of a labor history. At one point, for instance, LaSalle goes to Fort Frontenac and he gets a letter, or I think it's two voyagers come to deliver a message. And that message is from Tonte, who's back at Fort Crevacore, that said that all the men had deserted, nearly all the men had deserted, destroyed Fort Crevacore, plundered the magazine, throwing into the river all arms, goods, and stores which they could not carry off. I mean, that's a rebellion. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a full-blown mutiny. It's more than just a, a desertion. It's a, it's a full-blown mutiny. Uh, and, you know, say what you want about the Indians, say what you want about just the, the wilderness and those threats. I mean, the biggest threat to LaSalle's campaign here is, is the workers themselves who, you know, are, are feeling, for some reason, feel betrayed. Now, we don't quite get their motives except the, the overall misery of the expedition. But, you know, I, I, you know, there's something to investigate and it's something that Parkman's not gonna, not, doesn't tell us here, but it's something we should certainly uh, explore. And they do seem to put an end to this uh, Mississippi expedition of LaSalle, which is gonna force him to go back to France and force him to start again. And he's going to, in the third part of this volume, we get the story of his return to France, his new commission, and his uh, work in in uh, in Mexico or in Texas, he goes to Texas. Of course, uh, part of Mexico. Um, I don't know if it was officially part of Mexico at the time, but part of the Spanish um, claims. And he ends up trying to establish a colony there in in Texas. Uh, now we get a little bit more here, um, interesting in its own right, and that is the the adventures of Hennepin. We get a couple chapters here about him. He's kind of another kind of side quest in this larger story of the discovery of the Great West by the by New France. And, um, you know, Father Hennepin, wow, what, a, what an interesting guy. He goes off to like to Minnesota and to, he encounters the Lakota, the Sioux and those groups. The same group that kind of Parkman started his career exploring in his first book, The Oregon Trail. So, so who is this Father Hennepin? Well, he was there at, at Fort Crevelcoir, the founding of it, in 1680. And he was sent kind of as a, an advanced group to search for the Mississippi River. And eventually they go west, though. They, they do find the, 
where the Illinois and the Mississippi have a juncture, but then they go farther west into into Minnesota um, and encounter the the Sioux there. And we get there his his adventures described here as well. So that's uh, he's kind of an in, an interesting story, and and it, I think this these voyages are confirmed, but but at the time Parkman wrote this, there seemed to have been some dubiousness about his honesty and his sources. Um, but certainly uh, Parkman seems to believe in his in his account. So um, yeah, I think that's all I'm going to say about this part of the book. Um, just I think we're reminded as we read this part of the story that it, we can't just look at the Indians and the, and the French and the English. That's kind of the three components here, that there's other groups involved. Whether Now, of course, we've already met the Jesuits and their conflicts with uh, those in power in New France. But there's the working class people who make up this frontier world, whether it's the fur traders, the, those corps de bois, or it's these just French peasants who get recruited for these expeditions or whatever, or end up becoming fur traders. They're an important part of the story as well. Um, and so that's all I'm going to say. So if you have any thoughts or opinions about that, you know, I'd love to, to hear about them. It's something that I certainly want to explore more. Not so much in this context. My interest is, is in the Pacific more. But, um, but yeah, they're, they're, wherever there's exploration, this story is something we can, I think, tell. Um, so in the next episode, I'll finish up LaSalle and the Discovery of the Great West by Francis Parkman, looking at the Texas expedition and saying a little bit about that. Um, yeah, and that's going to be it for for now. So send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com if you have any thoughts or comments. Um, but yeah, that's going to be it for now. So I'll see you next time with my conclusion, the conclusion of my thoughts on LaSalle and the Great West. That's LaSalle and the discovery of the Great West.